It is, in fact, our ninth week in 1 Peter 1. And wouldn't you know it, we're through more than nine verses, so um, there's that. Well, sort of. We're actually kind of right on nine right now. So, uh, almost through nine verses. Can anybody uh, help me out a little bit and summarize a little of what what First Peter has told us so far? Uh, one of the dangers of the way that we're studying on Tuesday evenings is that you can lose the forest for the trees. You can get so bogged down with the individual aspects of what's going on that you can lose the greater understanding of what's being said. So let me read the first nine verses of First Peter 1, and then help me, uh, my, my prayer is that as I read, all of this is just going to be familiar, and it's going to make sense, and you're going to understand the flow, and what's being said, and even some of the, more, the, the deeper implications, because we've talked through it so much. So let me read it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith even the salvation of your souls. What's Peter talking about? Sophia? Very good. So, so Peter is connecting the glory of God and His goodness, particularly with this concept of salvation, the reality of our salvation, but not just the reality of our salvation, the hope of our salvation, right? The salvation that we have to look forward to, the joy that we have to look forward to. And so Peter begins by rejoicing in the joy of what we have, and, and he's really being... Clever. Uh, clever is maybe not the right word, but he's, he's approaching this epistle beautifully, and of course it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because he's going to be talking to them, and we've seen, we're, we're seeing this already about suffering for Christ, and about persecution, and about the trying of our faith, and about needing to reflect properly the, the, the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. And as he's saying all of these things, and he will be, he starts out by saying, wow, God is so good. You have this salvation that's coming to you, and you've got it, and it's there for you, and it's, it's kept by the power of God, and uh, it's ready to be revealed, and you've got this, and it's all, it's all coming. Praise God for that, kind of building them up a little bit. And then, of course, he says, wherein, verse 6, ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. And then we talked about verse 7, the trial of our faith being more precious than of gold that, that perisheth, more precious than the material things, uh, that, that the trial of our faith is worth it. Because as our faith is tried, it burns off the impurities, and it makes us better for Christ. At, at, at uh, His appearing, we'll have more praise and honor and glory to give unto Him. And then we ended last week, I believe, with verse 8, "...whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see Him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable." And full of glory. So let's just um, take a look at where we are on our diagram here. Um, In whom ye are rejoicing, 
with joy inexpressible and glorious and then um, that part I believe we've already covered Whom, uh, having not seen but believing uh, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory receiving the end of your faith and we haven't covered this quite yet even the salvation of your soul and that'll be verse 9 so uh, I'm going to scroll down a little bit here so don't get dizzy and we're going to pick up with did we, did we do Ye Rejoice last week? Uh, or, no, it was two weeks ago, so none of us are going to remember. You think we did? Well, if Abby thinks we did, then we must have. Um, let's go ahead and start there. You, yes, yes, we did. That's right, because that's the contraction. You rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let's just talk about these last two words uh, before we get into some of the implications. So, uh, rejoicing with joy unspeakable. Can somebody read for me? Ooh. That Greek word there? Sophia. I, I, you, you pretty well got it, Bell. Yeah, aneklaletas, aneklaletas. And so this is um, something that is not spoken out. The ah there, ah is the negative particle, so that implies that it's negating whatever the word is. And then eklaleo is the actual word there, meaning to divulge or to speak out. So ah, or an in this case, because you can't have the alpha next to the epsilon at the beginning, so it adds the, the new there, aneklaletas. Uh, from eklaleo, uh, meaning to speak out. You cannot speak out. Not capable of expression is literally the idea there. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. I didn't look this time to see if maybe it was the only time that it's been found in, in classical or ancient Greek. Sometimes that happens with Paul, where you look in Liddell and Scott, which is the, the lexicon of, of classical Greek, and you look in the Septuagint, and wouldn't you know it, the word is nowhere. And then you realize, well, Paul probably made that word up just to get his point across. Uh, I don't know if that was the case here, but this is the only time this word is found in the New Testament. Simply the, the negative particle on front of this word. So we rejoice with joy unspeakable. So joy that cannot be uttered. Joy that is not capable of expression and full of glory. Um, this is a participle. Can anybody read me the participle there? Audrey. Um, say the end of the. Say it again. I'd say mene there at the end there, uh, the ada. So uh, and it'd be more of like a dog, the gz sound for the 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 gzai there. So dead dogs asmene, and uh, dogza is the word glory. So this would be uh, very similar to that. Dogzadzo means to be glorious, and this is a participle. Sorry, I should have had you read that. Um, perfect passive. So it's a perfect participle. Um, let me just scroll up a little bit there. Can anybody tell me what the perfect tense uh, reflects or what, what it means when we see something in the perfect tense? Sophia? A past completed action with, go ahead, there you go, finish it off, with continuing results. Sorry, Belle, I know you look cheated, but got to let the person that started it finish if she, if she, uh, she got it. So yes, it's a past action with continuing or lingering results. So this joy that we rejoice in is inexpressible and full of glory. It, it, it was glorious, it is glorious, it's continuing to be glorious. That idea there, um, it's passive voice, something happening to um, the subject and it's just a glorious thing. And so this is how Peter is describing 
the joy that we have in Christ and in our salvation. I hope that, that uh, you have felt that. Ah, so it is our core. Oh, yes, it is. This is pulling out. Someone was definitely playing with this then. That's what we're dealing with. Mystery solved, at least. So that's good. Um, train thought totally derailed. Hang on. Yes, joy, salvation. Inexpressible joy, full of glory. A glorious, inexpressible joy in Christ and in our salvation. Now you that were saved at a younger age um, may not... Um, have come to the place yet where the fullest realities of your salvation have brought you to um, those sorts of, of moments of just inexpressible joy. Maybe, maybe they have, but as a believer, those moments where you truly recognize all that you've been saved from, uh, that's what Peter is speaking of here, and all you have to look forward to. And this is the kind of joy that can sustain you in the hard times. This is the kind of joy that can sustain you in the persecution and in the weariness and in the drudgery. Uh, we've talked Sunday uh, quite a bit about the concept of running a race, right? And as we think about that concept of pressing toward the mark and running the race, one of the reasons why we fail to do that is because races are tiring, right? When you're running in a race, there's a point where your legs are burning and your lungs are burning and you just don't want to run any longer. You don't want to push. You might have the ability, you might have the capacity, but, but you just don't want to anymore. It hurts and you'd much rather just stop. And in those times, you, you remember the goal. It's always worth it when you get to the finish line. And then you say, wow, I'm so glad I pressed. We, this used to happen all the time with my wife and I at the rock wall. My, I, I, I didn't do this because it's not my personality. I'm not a pusher. If someone says, I don't want to do it, I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. But my wife is not that way. Uh, if a kid was halfway up the wall and he says, I just can't do it, She'd be like, well, I'm not letting you down, so get up that wall. And that's just how she would go. And, and he'd, he'd let go, and she said, well, I'm not letting you down, so you might as well grab the wall and get back on it. And I can't tell you how many times one of these, these, these boys um, that was being mercilessly uh, prodded by my wife would get up to the top, would get down and say, hey, thank you for making me push through it. I'm really glad I was able to get to the top. And it gave them that sense of accomplishment and such because they made it to the top. They didn't want to, but if, when they realize, or if you, if you have in your mind the end goal, the accomplishment, the joy, then you can push through. And this is the idea here. Peter says you're in heaviness now. You're, you're tired. You're in heaviness through manifold temptations. The trial of your faith, you've got to remember it's precious. And then you receive the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your soul. And that, that is, that, that's the goal. So that's this last little bit here, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. Can somebody um, read me this word that means receiving? It's a participle. Bell. Close. That's not a delta in the middle there, though. That's a zeta. Try again. That's it. Common zamenoi. How about the lexical form? Sophia? Commitzo. Very good. And this is to provide for, to bring, or to receive. So receiving, and this is a participle, so you've got that, and it's a present, so it's an ongoing or linear kind of that linear action, something that's happening right now. Receiving the end of your faith even the salvation of your soul. So I want to talk about this concept of salvation here. And then we're also going to nail down the idea of our salvation as a future event. And that's going to finish this chunk through verse 9, and then we'll jump into verses 10, 11, and 12. So the dynamics of salvation in the New Testament. <coughs> Excuse me. Salvation is most regularly spoken of in the New Testament as eternal salvation for our souls. But salvation can and is used 
used in the New Testament far more broadly than eternal salvation. And we need to know this. Because if we don't know this, then we're going to get very confused sometimes when we're reading our Bible. And it talks about people being saved or, or concepts having to do with salvation. And we'll say, wow, that really kind of sounds like salvation through works. Or that kind of sounds like salvation um, by proxy of of you know, some other family member or whatever. But, but when we understand that salvation doesn't always mean being born again, it gives us a greater understanding of, of some of the, the things that might be going on in the New Testament. So consider some of the uses of the word, uh, and let's have somebody read me that Greek word there, the word that means salvation. Sophia? Soteria, Soteria very good. Soteria. And in Acts 27.34, Scripture says, Wherefore I pray you to take some meat, for this is for your health. And that word health there is soteria. For there shall not an hair fall from the head of any of you. So this is salvation in the context of physical wellness. This is for your, and the word there is salvation. This is, this is to save you from starving. This is to save you from passing out. This is to save you from... Uh, from physical illness and that's how we see that word in Acts 27.34 2 Corinthians 7.10 for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of but the sorrow of the world worketh death this is one of the most commonly misinterpreted passages when it comes to repentance for salvation 2 Corinthians who is Paul writing to in 2 Corinthians Take a guess. Sophia? The Corinthians, you got it. That's so good. So she's writing to the... uh, He, he, not she. He, not you, him. He's writing to the Corinthian church. He's writing to a group that he wrote to once before in an epistle that we call... 1 Corinthians, right? And so in 1 Corinthians, he's writing to this church. And we, I've preached through 1 Corinthians. Can anybody um, tell me the general gist of, first, of, of the epistle of 1 Corinthians? I know there's a bunch of stuff in it. Spiritual gifts and, and um, love in 1 Corinthians 13 and, and fornication and, and such. But, but what, was, what would you say is the general thrust of 1 Corinthians? Sophia. Okay, I like it. Faithfulness. In light, and as, as we consider that, the idea of being faithful, what, what was the state of the Corinthian church that Paul was writing to? What, what was their spiritual condition at the time? You know, Abby, what was the, what was the spiritual condition of the church? That's a very good verse, yes. Be content with such things as you have. But uh, not quite the, what, where they were at the time. They were in a, in a terrible place, right? They were, they were a church that was in great um, sin. There was a man in the church who was... Um, in a relationship with his mother-in-law. They, there was um, tremendous um, bickering back and forth. Uh, the, the, the rich were refusing the poor. Remember, it's in 1 Corinthians 11 where we read of the Lord's table. And Paul has to rebuke them about the way they're doing the Lord's table because they were being gluttonous and they were getting drunk and they were refusing to allow anybody that couldn't bring their own food to take part in, in the, the fellowship feast. And so we have all of these things going on. The, the women in the church, that's the, the um, epistle where we read about head coverings because the women in the church were usurping their authority and they were not being proper in the church. And it was just, the church was a mess. And so Paul writes to this church and he says, you're believers, but you're not living like it. Straighten up. And that's what he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 7. He's talking about their response. He's talking about the godly sorrow that worked repentance in them, not unto eternal salvation. They'd already been saved. Read through 1 Corinthians. This is, I mean, he's writing to people and he's, he's assuming they're saved. He's assuming they are believers. They're carnal believers. 1 Corinthians is the book that reminds us that a believer can get carnal. 
that a believer can, can go just as far into sin as an unbeliever can. And that's the context of 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. You, the, the salvation that was worked in you through your godly sorrow, you shouldn't repent of that. But the sorrow of the world, he says, worketh death. This wasn't the world's sorrow. This wasn't that kind of... The, the sorrow that, that works death, the sorrow that, that brings nothing but condemnation, this was the, the sorrow that brought about to you deliverance from sin. Salvation. So, in this context, it's not speaking of salvation. Uh, from the penalty of sin, eternal salvation, being born again. This is speaking of salvation from sinful choices and their consequences. Uh, Philippians 1.19 For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through... Oh, any questions on that one? That one can be a little controversial. I, not, not to the group in here, I don't think, as um, there's no one in here that has that um, deep mindset of repentance. Um, many times when I go to churches and I, I read through their tracts, because I'm always looking for good tracts, I'll find 2 Corinthians 7.10 in a, in a gospel presentation, and it just kills me. Um, because that's not what that verse is saying at all. Um, okay, Philippians 1.19 For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and, sup and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Here Paul is talking about being delivered from physical persecution for the Gospel. And he is under persecution. Uh, does anybody know where Paul is when he's writing Philippians? He is in prison at the time. This is one of what we call the prison epistles. He's in, the pri in prison at the time. And as he writes to the Philippian church and he thanks them for, for helping him and, and for, for sending to his needs and such, he says that he, he is sure that their prayers for him will turn to his salvation. Paul doesn't need to be born again. He, he, he's had that happen already by this point in his, in his life. He needs to be saved from prison. And that is the same word. The same word. Uh, Philippians 1.28 And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. This could possibly be eternal salvation, that as you're not afraid of your enemies, that is a token of your you being born again, or that you have been born again of God. But it's also possible in, in the context of, of deliverance from fear, that as you're not terrified of your enemies, you can live outside of the fear of your enemies. You, that that um, they see it, your enemies see it as a token of your, that, that you're crazy, you know, that you're not afraid of them, that you're willing to stand up, that you're, you're not afraid to die. But to you, it's a token of your release. Hebrews 11.7, by faith Noah, being warned of God of the things not yet and not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So this is salvation from a physical disaster. We know as well that the ark is a type of Christ and so certainly there was the, the physical or the spiritual salvation but the scriptures tell us that Noah was a just and righteous man 120 years before the ark needed to be there, right? As he was a preacher of righteousness for those 120 years. Which means this was not when he got saved. This was when his family was saved from the flood. So again, the physical deliverance. Um, and so as we, we consider those instances, we see that salvation in the New Testament is a broad concept that doesn't just mean being born again or being justified by faith. Now, if you go to the verb form, so that was, um, that was a, a substantive. If you go to the verb form, can anyone read me that verb form hidden in the middle there? Sophia? Sozo, right, sozo. Um, there's several contexts within which we see this word. Being physically healed. Look at all of these places where um, that word is used to talk about physical healing. Matthew 9, Mark 5, um, 
6 and 10, Luke 4 and 8 and 17, Acts 4 and 14, James 5, 15. All of those contexts are people being physically healed. And you look at all the Gospels in there. That's when Jesus Christ is healing people. Um, that's when He's performing miracles. Uh, household salvation. This is an interesting one. We see both with Cornelius and the Philippian jailer, uh, Peter tells Cornelius and Paul tells the Philippian jailer that they would be saved and their house. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house, it says in Acts 16. So possibly referring to the spread of the gospel throughout a believing household. Possibly referring to a complete change in the household direction and understanding. Not quite sure here, but here's what we do know. That if Cornelius or the Philippian jailer believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, that wouldn't automatically make his family saved from sin. Say, born again. They'd have to be born again too. And yet twice we see this concept where um, the man of God says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and your household. Uh, and that could throw us, except that we do know in the Bible that the word salvation doesn't have to mean born again. Which means we fall back upon those things that we do know. We fall back upon the fact that we know God says every man will answer for his own works. Every man will answer for his own decisions. And that every man stands before God, him and God alone, and that ye must be born again. And when we know that, we know that it cannot mean that if a father is saved, his whole household is covered. We know it can't mean that. Um, we see deliverance from danger in Acts 27.31. We see restoration of dig dignity. This is an interesting one, right? In 1 Timothy 2.15, talking about the woman keeping silence because the woman was deceived, the man was not deceived, the woman was deceived. And then it says, Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. There's a lot of debate as to what it means that a woman is saved in childbearing, but I... I personally believe it's the idea that though she was deceived into doing wrong, childbearing is one of the ways that God has restored her place, that He has restored her dignity, that she has this exalted place now in the family and in society because she is the one that is capable of bearing children. And so whereas um, she, she perhaps as we consider the, the event um, of Adam and Eve the Jewish mind in particular would look at her and would, would disdain the, the, dece the way that she was deceived. Yet, as we look in Jewish culture, women were greatly elevated because of their capacity to bear children and to carry on the family line. We also see deliverance from the sin of the world. Uh, in 1 Timothy 4, James 5, 20, saving you from the world, and then uh, to be preserved. Second uh, Timothy four eighteen, Paul says that the Lord will preserve him unto the heavenly kingdom. That is the word save there, uh, and it has nothing to do with being born again. It has nothing to do with the perseverance idea. It has everything to do with the being preserved, being kept. The same concept that we see in First Peter, being kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So, is there, are there any questions as we surveyed all of those verses about that concept of salvation? Absolutely. Yes, we see the example all throughout the Bible. Adam and Eve, they had one son who was a believer, one who was not. Um, we think of Jacob and Esau, right? And Esau being called a profane man. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he, he never placed his faith in God, but definitely his, his choices were profane and he was rejected for the covenant. Um, we, we see that example, and particularly when I think of that example or that concept... I think of Ezekiel. 
And I don't exactly know the chapter offhand right now, but in Ezekiel, um, as Ezekiel's prophesying to the nation, he says, you've got this prophecy, nation of Israel, that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set at edge. The idea that our fathers made the mistakes and now we're suffering for them. And he says, there's not going to be any reason for you ever again to say that parable in Israel. The soul that sinneth... It shall die. If a father sins and the child repents and does right, the father will die for his sin. The child will be delivered. If if his child does, if the child does right and his son sins, the 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 father will will be delivered and the son will will pay for his sin. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And it's made so abundantly clear in in the book of Ezekiel that that is how it works. That there are no such thing as spiritual grandchildren. Nobody gets in by virtue of the fact that their parents got in. Everyone is a child of God. There are no grandchildren of God. Is what that means. Everyone has to become a child of God on their own volition. Not their own effort, but their own volition to place their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So, very good point. Any other thoughts? So as we consider this, the abiding lesson from this survey is that one must always be aware of the context within which the word salvation is found. You can't just find any verse that says salvation in the New Testament and apply it to being born again. Uh, You have to know the context within which you're operating, and you have to operate within that context. Never take for granted that it's speaking of eternal salvation. And if you're reading something and it doesn't mesh, you say, this doesn't sound like eternal salvation, this doesn't sound like justification, that's a good reason for you to study the context a little bit and to understand what the salvation is being said there. Uh, Maybe it's not speaking about being born again. Maybe it's speaking about being healed. Maybe it's speaking about being delivered from sin. Uh, maybe it's speaking about being delivered from the consequences of sin. Maybe it's speaking, speaking about um, being preserved. Uh, many different possibilities. So as with all study, we begin with what is clear. Then we move to the ambiguous. If something is ambiguous in Scripture... You don't form a doctrine around it. If something is not clear, you don't form a doctrine around it. You go find the clarity. You start with what is clear, and then you work out from there. I like to call it finding the least common denominator. Most of our our young people would be familiar with that now. You find the thing that makes that, that is across the board true when it comes to salvation so let's just let's just uh, talk about that because it's the easy one when it talk when, when when it comes to being born again by grace through faith what is the least common denominator the thing that in every single account of the gospel is the the one thing that must take place to be born again Was I clear? What's the least common denominator of salvation? The one thing that every gospel account in the scripture says must happen for a person to be saved. What was that? Mason? Good. Yes. Good. Belief, right? Belief. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, salvation is easy, right? Uh, it's an easy concept to understand. Its depth is incredible, but uh, it is. It's too easy. So I'm sorry if it seemed like a trick question to you. But th- that's it, right? That is the least common denominator. You boil it all down, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. As a matter of fact, when you look into the book of John, which is the one, uh, the one book in the New Testament that is actually stated to be the book meant to show people how to be saved. You find the word believe all over the place. Do you know what you don't find? You don't find the word repent. Not once in the book of John. Not once. You don't find these other concepts. You find believe. That's what you find. That's the least common denominator. Now, there are other ways that it's described. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So, Paul says in Romans 10 that there's this confess with your mouth thing. Well, there's an understanding there that if you believe with all your heart, then it's going to be confessed. Um, Baptism. Sometimes it talks about a person being 
being baptized um, and an understanding there that if you are getting baptized, it's because you believe so much that you're willing to publicly testify. That's what a baptism was, a public testimony. You're willing to confess with your mouth. And if, if particularly in Jewish culture, you were willing to be baptized, knowing that by being baptized you would be ostracized from family and maybe your job and you would begin being persecuted, well then you're going to believe, right? Belief is, is there because you are now at a point where you're willing to testify. Same with repentance. Repentance, uh, there's a lot of debate about what that word even means. The, the concept, though, that you are repenting from dead works and faith towards God, or you are turning to God and thus your sin is falling away, it has nothing to do inherently or intrinsically with turning away from your sin. The turning away from your sin is something that comes through the love that you have as you place your faith in Christ. And for many, that sin falls away right away. For others, it's kind of a process of sin falling away. Either way, what does change is your heart at the moment of salvation. That makes you recognize some things are wrong. And it brings you into a process of repentance. And so it's okay to speak of repentance in regard to salvation, as long as we understand that the least common denominator is belief. So when we have these places in Scripture where there's confusion, or where there are the, the waters can get a little muddied, always go back to the stuff that is clear. And what is clear... As in our example about salvation is the book of John. It's John 3, 16, 17, and 18. He that believeth is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. Jesus told Nicodemus to believe. That's all he told him. And unless Jesus was interested in only giving partial Gospels, especially since he was talking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, Right? The same Pharisees that John said, you generation of vipers, bring forth repentance, fruit, meat unto repentance, and then I'll baptize you. With that group of people, with that, a man from that group, Jesus didn't say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and I shall be saved. Okay? So, yeah. Th this... This idea, particularly with salvation, of salvation in any context meaning eternal salvation, has brought many theological errors and debates. And just knowing that salvation doesn't always mean being born again can save us a lot of trouble and protect us from a lot of error. Oh, good. Any other thoughts? Okay, salvation is a future event. We've talked about this already, the concept of being positionally saved and positionally elect and positionally adopted and all of these things. So, in verse 9 it says, Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. Souls, plural, excuse me. Which makes sense because he was saying you're there, which is plural. So, he says that the end of our faith is the salvation of our soul. And the anticipated context within which we find this is at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So, as we mentioned already with adoption, salvation is a future event that has present implications. Unlike adoption, however, there are elements of our Salvation, which have already taken place. And that is because salvation doesn't always talk about the same thing, like we've just mentioned. Biblical salvation is typically considered within three concepts. Salvation from the power of sin, salvation from the penalty of sin, and salvation from the presence of sin. Salvation from the power of sin. This is the Romans 8 salvation. Affected it's at the um, moment of salvation is what I believe that says there. The chains of sin are eternally removed from the soul of the believer. You're not separated from your flesh, but you are separated from the power of sin. Sin has no power over you. You are under grace. You are not under the law. Sin has no power to bring you under a condemnation. Sin has no power to bring you into guilt. Sin has no power to bring you under it. The only power sin has is the power you give it. 
after you have accepted Christ as your Savior. Uh, And we also see salvation from the penalty of sin. Uh, This is declared at the moment of salvation. That's justification. But it's affected at the day of judgment. That the penalty of sin is removed from you. That you are no longer on the path to hell. You are on the path to heaven. The penalty for your sin is paid for. And that penalty is officially declared removed. You are declared righteous the moment you accept salvation. So as we sit here... Here today, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Our name is written in the book of life. We're, we have a place reserved in heaven for us, right? That's what we've been learning about in 1 Peter. It's a place that's already there. The moment we got saved, the mansion was, was prepared for us. The third concept is salvation from the presence of sin. And this is a promise, at the moment of salvation, but it is affected at our death or at our translation if the Lord should come. So this idea, we, we are nowhere near this on this earth, right? This is the Roman 7 frustration where Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He is lamenting the reality that our sinful flesh is still here and it's, it's powerful. And we're going to find it in Galatians as well. As we get into Galatians 5, and, we're, and Paul is talking about walking in the Spirit and so not fulfilling the lust of the flesh, he'll say, For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to another, so that ye cannot do the things ye would. So the flesh and the Spirit are constantly butting heads in you. And the flesh wants you to do one thing, and the Spirit wants you to do another thing, and it would freeze you into inaction if it weren't for the fact that you can walk in the Spirit and so not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And yet the presence is still there. The presence will remain until you receive your new body. When you receive your new body, that body will not contain the presence of sin as your current body does. And of course, in the millennial kingdom and then into eternity, there will be no sin in the surroundings. The millennial kingdom, the scriptures imply, that's the time where the lion lays down with the lamb, where the child plays on the hole of the asp, which is a snake. The implication there is that the curse will have been removed. And so we won't have the curse... We won't have, for we who are believers in the church at that point, will be ruling and reigning with Christ in our resurrected bodies. And then Satan will have been cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years, which means we won't have the world to fight with, we won't have the flesh to fight with, and we won't have the devil to fight with. And those are the three things we fight against, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil, which means the fight will be over. Now, there will be those in the millennial kingdom who are not... In resurrected bodies. They entered from the tribulation into the millennial kingdom with their current bodies. They'll still have children, they'll still multiply, they'll still have a sin nature. It will be ruled and reigned with a rod of iron. They won't have Satan tempting them though. And they won't have a a sin-cursed world. They'll only contend with the flesh, not with the world or the devil. And yet, at the end of that time, it will be abundantly clear that even though they're only contending with the flesh... It's still a strong enemy. Sophia. Mm. Yeah. Yep. The demonic realm would be uh, included with the devil. And so in, in Revelation, we see it specifically said that Satan would be locked in the bottomless pit. But the other demons, with the exception of those that the Lord has given, you know, a time for them to rule. The majority of angels are already locked in that bottomless pit in chains. We'll talk about that uh, in the next couple of weeks on Sunday morning um, as we consider 1 Samuel 28. But yes, it will include the demon, the demonic realm. And as we consider salvation, we, we consider salvation within these three contexts. Now, throughout the scripture, salvation is regularly spoken of in the present, but also in the future. Romans 5, verses 9 and 10. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved, future tense, from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we 
shall be saved by his life. And so here we see two future tense words speaking of our salvation. This would be salvation from eternal punishment, from the presence and power of sin. Romans 13.11 And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Every breath you take, every second that ticks by, your salvation is drawing nearer. Whether it's you're drawing nearer to the moment of your death, or whether it's we are drawing nearer to the Lord's return, your salvation is nearer than when you believed. He says, so it's time to wake up, it's time to get busy doing what you need to do, because your salvation is coming, and you want to be ready. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. We are appointed to obtain salvation. Once again, an um, idea there of future... Wow, nice little gap there. Of, of future. And so that is through verse 9. Are there any questions about the concept of salvation being a future event? The end of our faith being the salvation of our souls. So we are saved now, but there are some salvation events that are future. Saved from the power of sin, saved from the penalty of sin, will be saved from the presence of sin. Sophia. Yep, absolutely. And uh, maybe even a little... Well, and the ticket analogy would be a good one. So you have... You've got the tickets, and it's for a orchestra thing. So you've put on the dress, and you've done your hair, and you're, you've, you've prepared yourself. And you've got the tickets. It's as good as happening. You just have to get there. And that's, that's the idea that Paul regularly gives. Kind of the pack your bags because you're going home. And you've just got to wait until it comes, but be ready. You, you, you don't want to, you know, ten minutes before you have to leave for the airport, realize you haven't packed your bags yet. You could still get on the plane, but you're not going to be nearly as prepared as if you had packed your bags. And that, that's the idea that's regularly given in Scripture as far as salvation is concerned. You're already on the list. You've already got a reserved seat. You're just waiting for it to happen. And that's just a matter of time. Any other questions? Well, I was intending to get into verse 10, but it won't happen tonight. So, if there's no other thoughts, concerns, or smart remarks, I know, one minute. I did well. Admit it. Then we'll be finished there. Hmm? One and a half. One and a half. Don't sell me short. Okay. Very good. Yep, that's a great way to put it. Yep, it's like that in a church too. I wish I could... Men are speaking, it would be nice to preach the same sermons every year because you always have people coming through. But, and people growing up. Um, but yes, and, and there is that idea that we see in Ephesians and Colossians, the idea that we are already effectively, positionally, standing with Christ in the heavenlies. So it's not just, not just that our name is written down, but because God is above time... Beyond time, he's not in time, right? He's already, and we talked about this with election, he's already standing with us in heaven, in eternity future. And so as he looks at us in heaviness through manifold temptations and the trials of our faith and the struggles, he's, he's looking at us in light of the fact that we're already standing without spot or wrinkle or any such thing with him in glory in eternity, bowing at his feet, casting our crowns before his feet, rejoicing with him, basking in, in the brightness of his glory. And so he, he sees us now as there and 
it's just all one... It's, it's all like one thing to God. Uh, it's, 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 it's all in the aorist tense. It's all just punctual. It's all just happening. And um, we, we can't comprehend that because we can't comprehend outside of time, right? But that's how God is. He's... doesn't matter. Absolutely, and that, that is exactly it. And what, a, what an interesting thing when you think about that. When you think about the fact that God has seen it all, and yet the things that have still happened, and it just makes you marvel uh, all the more at His mercy, His love, and His patience. But it also makes you marvel because He's got this thing called time. Right? And it spans however long he's decided. But there was a beginning of it, and there was an end of it, and then there's eternity on either side of it. And in this thing called time, where he created the world to when it's destroyed and remade, he's worked everything out just perfectly. It's like one big puzzle, and he's put every piece into place so that people are intersecting and things are happening. And then somehow in the midst of all of that, he allows us to have our part through prayer and through volition. And he gives us the ability as, as, as he, he, it's kind of like, um, I guess the way I think of it is, you know, you run, you, you see these companies that run computer simulations and they run through the simulation and, and they see how things happen and then they tweak variables to make things happen again to get the results they're looking for. And so God has this result and that result is set in stone. And he had the way he was going to do it, Jesus Christ and uh, him being slain and, and Israel. And he had all of these things set in place. And then he just like watched it happen and wove everything together uh, into the perfect scenario so that every man's choices would work together. Their free will choices would work together toward his end. And it's just an incredible, incredible thing to think about um, that as we consider all of the evil men in the world and they think that they're winning and Satan and, and his kingdom and how his kingdom is unfolding and, and uh, when you learn about how he's using this world and using the wicked men in this world and, and everything that they think and then you realize, you remember that it's all working for God's glory and, and Satan is trying so hard to win and yet everything he's doing is exactly what God has foreseen him to do to the end of him. Uh, and it just makes you glad you're on God's side.